Welcome to Inspiration Rising. I'm your host, David Trotter, and we're here to inspire you to rise up in your life, love, and leadership. Today, I want to introduce you to Sarah Wilson, someone who I consider an expert in navigating her career with the power of GNT. And that doesn't stand for gin and tonic, by the way. It stands for give and take. She started her career as a journalist working for companies such as MTV, People, The Economist, Los Angeles Magazine, and The Huffington Post. She spent nearly five years running lifestyle partnerships at Facebook and Instagram. She's the founder of SW Projects, which advises brands such as Bumble, WeWork, The New York Times, Bustle, National Geographic, Playboy, Goldie Blocks, and more on digital content and influencer strategy. In today's episode, you're going to learn how Sarah knows when it's the right time to make a career move, how to create a position that doesn't even exist yet, the power of give and take to take your career to the next level, whether or not to focus on building your personal brand while working for someone else, and why brands need to function like publishers and publishers need to function like brands. All right, let's jump into my conversation with Sarah Wilson. Thank you, Sarah, so much for taking time to hang with me today. I'm so excited to be here, David. Thank you. A lot of our listeners are in transition or maybe want to be, whether it comes to their job or an entrepreneurial venture or side hustle or something of that nature. And from what I have heard and seen online, you're quite an expert when it comes to navigating a lot of those transitions from opportunity to opportunity. And one of the things that I've always wrestled with in the opportunities that have come my way is how do you know when it's the right time to take that next step versus, no, that's not quite the right one, or it could be, you know what I mean? Like, how do you process that in your mind? Or how have you done that as you've gone from opportunity to opportunity? Totally. Well, there's so many different things. First of all, I think opportunities, you know, don't sort of exist as free floating things. They come in the form of people. They always come through people. And so that's why I really spent a lot of time leveraging and sort of investing in relationships, um, as a form of, you know, opportunity generation. I mean, that just sounds so crass, but uh, I really think that the most interesting things that have happened to me in my life have come as a result of relationships that I've genuinely cultivated um, over a long period of time. And, you know, I I look at those relationships as kind of the the bread and butter for everything that I do. Um, Up until now, uh, the most interesting, you know, things come to me that way. So I would say that's kind of the first is just sort of cultivating those those, those people in your life. And you may not know ahead of time exactly who's going to yield what. That's why it's not transactional. You can't really think of it that way. It's more, wow, I really want to go spend time with people who are doing interesting things, invest in those relationships and see what eventually comes. Um, in terms of how I know, I mean, the short answer is that I don't. I think that you, you really have to look at your trajectory of life and your career as one and the same. I mean, you aren't going to know exactly, uh, you know, what choices are going to lead you down, which paths you, you essentially have to trust, um, that the people who you're connecting with at those various kind of touch points are the right people and that you're going to find your way no matter what, um, if you trust your gut. I mean, that is very general advice and that's not really what I would say come away from this with, but it is a big piece of this. I mean, it's, it's looking at, all right, what if this is a circuitous route to whatever it is I'm going to do? That's okay. Um, you know, when I look at my career path, it has been very, very circuitous. And I do think that's what, you know, makes me qualified to do what I'm doing today. So one, I heard you say, man, 
invest in lots of relationships and seek yeah. out relationships and that you're not quite sure where those will lead. And then the second is that um, a sense of trusting your gut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I was just thinking just the other day, um, I was having lunch with a friend and it was kind of an outdoor patio area. And I'm not as big of an outward connector. I'm a little bit more of an introvert. Mm-hmm. And the guy that I'm with is a ultra extrovert. And there are these two gals that are sitting next to us and he strikes up a conversation. And by the end of the conversation, I'm giving one of them the contact information for a very close friend who has a lot of real estate outside of uh, Los Angeles County. And she wants real estate to do uh, marijuana growth, Mm -hmm. other things like that. And I'm like, the only way that I even got into this conversation is because of his willingness to kind of reach out there and bridge that gap. Right. Right. Do you, do you, like, how do you do that? Like, and you're in different situations. Are you more of an introvert or extrovert? Like, how have you learned to do that over the course of your life? Yes. So I'm definitely one of those, I think they're called introverted extroverts, people who get a lot of energy from other people. I'm definitely one of those, but then I also retreat back to my, you know, uh, home, you know, I, I extremely good at taking care of myself and, and sort of doing a battery recharge. But yes, I don't think any of my friends would say that I'm an introvert. I am like a total extrovert. I love planning things. I love bringing people together. I love hosting. Um, so that does feel natural to me. I would say if that's not your natural inclination, which by the way, it isn't for a lot of people and that's totally okay. It's kind of like connect yourself to those people and let them, you know, uh, help you go into the situation. So if those people are hosting, um, you know, go and avail yourself of their talents, just like you did with your friend. Um, I host something that's actually called G and T. It's based on the Adam Grant book called Give and Take. Um, I don't know if you've read it. I, I have not yet. Okay. So he's, he's, a he's kind of, um, a big figure in Silicon Valley and, uh, has written about this concept of, of giving, i.e., you know, giving of yourself or giving something of your talent and time. Um, and, and that being more, um, beneficial to you ultimately than taking, or that it really is about kind of a, a give and take a real back and forth between the two. And so some friends of mine started this group called GNT, obviously a play on it. Um, where we get, it's a women's networking group. We get women together, um, and offer to, you know, you can offer to give something and, and, you know, ask for something in return. And you really have to get up in front of the group and do that. And so if you're an introvert, that can be very difficult. And I totally acknowledge that, but the people who've actually forced themselves to do this have been able to benefit from things like, you know, new jobs, new partners, new, you know, uh, cars, whatever it might be. It's, it's opportunities that they connect to through that experience. And so take advantage of me. I'm the person hosting or take advantage of the person in your life who's doing that and and go avail yourself of that. Now, is that something that's just LA oriented or is that in different parts of the U S or right now it's just LA and it's super small. It's probably like 50 or 60 women. Um, every gosh, three months we do it, but it's growing. So, um, I would encourage you if you're interested, you know, you can hit me up. I'm sure you'll have my contact info, um, on your site and I can tell you a little bit about it. 
you you said G and T. When I was in elementary school in Kentucky, we had a G and T like group. Uh huh. It was the gifted and talented. Oh. And so then I get pulled out of the classroom with all the other nerd kids, you know, and all the yeah. other kids are like, "Oh yeah, you're going to the G and T group." Oh. <laughs> so what you're saying is this was not a very good thing. Is that well, what you it was good because I got to go play, you know, weird games on Apple computer, you right, know, like right. Oregon Trail and avoid ah. dysentery and all of those types of things. <laughs> Learn to avoid dysentery at an early age because of GMT. So. I love it. I love it. So there's different meanings for you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so you also have shared that a lot of these opportunities that you've gotten have been jobs that didn't exist even before you stepped into them. So how would you suggest that someone positions themselves to create a job within their own company. Most people are not entrepreneurs to create their own jobs, although we have some listeners who are. They're working within a a larger context. How how did you kind of set yourself up to find those opportunities? Mm -hmm. Well, first is, I think, sort of seeing what's on the horizon three or four or five years out versus where things are now. That can be very difficult, but I do think if you do a lot of reading, a lot of talking to people, surveying the landscape of your industry, you can start to see trends. So when I say that I did the job before anyone else, like that wasn't, you know, that, that was sort of an accident, but it was also a result of me doing a lot of sniffing out or kind of feeling out what was going on. So the first, I would say the first example of that, that's probably the most relevant is when I left um, Los Angeles magazine and took a job at the Huffington Post. Now the job itself was to run the HuffPost divorce section, which, you know, at the time I was single, I had never been married. I, you know, knew about divorce only to the extent that my parents had been divorced, but I wasn't really the most qualified necessarily. But at the same time, it really felt like a growing, you know, uh, entity HuffPost. And I thought, gosh, whatever this is, I want to be part of it. I want to see what I can contribute here. Um, And, you know, a lot of people at the time, magazines were, you know, still very much a thing. Why would you leave to go to this divorce section? It sounds sort of depressing. and, And what are you doing? But you know, what I saw in that was number one, Nora Ephron, who was the creator of the section. I I would basically just do anything to uh, work with her, be with her, do do anything with her that she had created. But also, you know, um, the experience of being at a growing company. So I just sort of looked at, well, what's growing? What's not? What's growing right now is digital media. At the time, it really was on the up. Um, And what's flattening right now is magazines. So okay, that, you know, magazines might still have the cachet, but in the long run, I want to be in a growing business. I want to be in a, in a business that's really, you know, an up and to the right business. So I chose that. Now, did I know that, you know, that was going to grow and it was going to become a thing, you know, sort of, but not really, it could have gone either way. So I think it does require some, um, you know, element of risk taking. You're not always going to know when you do a job before everyone else. Um, but you also, uh, can read the signs enough to go, okay, this is a safe bet. I do think that this is growing. And I think that that equation of flat versus growth is always a good one. Mm Mm-hmm. And as you were stepping into that, you were gone from kind of more of a traditional magazine publishing to the digital realm. How big of a growth curve was that for you? And how did you negotiate that? 
it was a huge growth curve for sure. Um, first of all, writing for magazines is a completely different experience than writing for, um, online. You know, I remember, uh, even just the experience of writing headlines when I was at in magazines, it's, it's such a specific type of headline you're writing and you don't realize until you get out of that world that it's, it's really not how people consume online. And I actually think that that shift is like much more, um, important uh, in, in sort of understanding why there's such a disconnect between those two industries. Like it's a different way of writing, a different way of consuming, a different way consumers, um, you know, digest content. And so you really have to adjust. Break, I mean, that, you, break that yeah, down for just for a second sure. for people who maybe don't understand or... Yeah. So a magazine headline is clever, is punny. It often has a play on words. It often is, you know, has to fit in a very concise um, you know, space. Oftentimes it's dictated by the design that the designer has, you know, decided upon with, um, with, with online publication. I mean, it's almost become a little bit of a joke, you know, 16 ways to blah, blah, blah. Or like, you'll never believe the blah, blah, blah. Like it's now become cliche with bad headlines. We see them all the time. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's contributed to a lot of like terrible online journalism, but what the kind of the nugget is, is easily digestible, quickly understandable. There's no puns. There's no plays on word. It's very much paging Dr. Obvious, I call it. And, uh, and it's just telling you exactly what you're going to get and teasing the idea a little bit. So you'll click. Now there is a very fine line between that and clickbait. Um, but I think nailing that uh, distinction is important. Mm-hmm. Okay. So part of it is, uh, seeing ahead, what's going up and to the right and seeing yeah. where you want to go. It seems like for a lot of people, as I think about that, you know, there's a challenge of, but I'm good at this. Yeah. But I'm good at magazine writing, but I mm-hmm. like magazines. I like to see it come out. I see the, f- obviously a lot of people that are listening are not magazine writers, but the, 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 the context is, I like the way that this is done and you're asking me to kind of become a different person in order to do that. Um, it seems like you have just this natural energy that wants to move in that direction. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. would you, what would you say to someone who's going, but I liked it the old way, but I liked it this way. Right. Yeah. I mean, you for too bad. Like basically the world <laughs> is evolving at a very quick pace and you yeah. absolutely if you plan to keep working and to keep making a living and to thrive in the global economy, you absolutely need to be shifting and changing at all times. And I feel that acutely, um, even, you know, in my current role, which theoretically is very much responding to the times. I mean, I, it is my job to maintain category expertise, to read as much as I, as I can, to listen to as much as I can. I'm constantly consuming and to monitor the changes in the industry in a way that, you know, if I was at a job that, it, that was full-time, I, I maybe wouldn't do. And that's where I think the, the sort of, um, uh, you know, the sense of, uh, like a going quote going soft or whatever can come in. I think you you sort of have this sense of you're a little bit inured from what's going on in the outside world, um, and you go, well, but I like this, but I like this. That's great, and you should keep doing it if you don't <laughs> want to make sure you have a job in five years. Like mm-hmm. I just these industries change really really quickly, and to put 
off um, those types of, of spidey senses, uh, for lack of a better word, like to sort of push that away. I think you do that at your peril. Mm-hmm. So how important is it for someone to be building their own personal brand, even if they're working for someone else? It's so funny. I was having a discussion yesterday with a client about exactly this topic because they're looking for like a really great social media manager, um, someone to run and sort of own that aspect of their business. And um, they were saying that, you know, the people that we're interviewing, the people that are coming to us are all, you know, 23. They all want to use our brand to build their own personal brands. And they're more interested in, in kind of essentially building their own brand off of the back of you know, ours. And like, that's, that's great and everything, but like, that's not necessarily going to bring the best results for the company that you're working for. And so, um, you know, I think that right now we're in this moment of everybody's an influencer, everybody's a micro influencer, everybody's a micro micro influencer and, um, being, somebody, um, at least on the internet is really valuable to a lot of people. Um, and I think that's not changing anytime soon. Um, I think the idea of building your personal brand is a really good one, but I also think that that's completely, you know, it's not going to, gosh, it's hard to make sweeping generalizations here because it's, it's like for every person that I say, focus on just putting your head down and doing, doing great work. There's going to be someone who comes up and has like 2 million followers overnight for, you know, being on the TV show and like swearing, like, do you know what I mean? Like there's so many examples of this. So I do think that the rules are totally changing. However, for the vast majority of people, um, being more interested in building your own brand than in, you know, doing great work, um, and potentially doing that for somebody else's brand, at least to start. I think that, that, that is not a path, um, that, that everybody, uh, that, that's, that's not, how, how shall I say this? I think building your brand is great. I think it's important, but don't do it, uh, to the exclusion of doing great work for someone else that, that might actually get you to, you know, your goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like if you're working at another company, the company's got to always come first. I mean, that's who's paying your bills, right? That's who's giving yes. you a paycheck. Um, but I do wonder, and especially because you've worked with so many people who are quote unquote influencers, you know, and moving from opportunity to opportunity, you've you've shared in the last few minutes that a lot of those opportunities have come from number one, people that you've met, and then number mm-hmm. two, always thinking about what's the next thing, what's up mm-hmm. and to the right. Mm-hmm. I also wonder how much of your brand has helped. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean brand meaning like you've got a bazillion followers on social media. Yeah. Just your brand, Sarah Wilson, the people that know Sarah Wilson, the people that talk about Sarah Wilson. Um, and it's having the right people know about Sarah Wilson. Not, it, does, right. it doesn't have to be everybody. It doesn't have to be the whole world that knows about Sarah Wilson, but the right people need to know about Sarah Wilson in order for her to get that next opportunity. That's totally, yes, that's totally true. It's funny to hear you put it that way, but yes, that is, that is accurate. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> so the right people have known about Sarah Wilson, you know, in order to get you those next opportunities. Hell right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the, the, the question, yeah, that, that just comes up in my mind is like, okay, how do I get the right people? To right. Know, not for me, but for people that are listening, they, mm-hmm. they need to know, you know, what my, who yeah. I am. 
Yeah. For sure. So I think one great way to do that um, is by writing um, and having a regular forum in which you share your expertise on whatever subject is um, your area of interest. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and it really, you know, depends on what area that is on which platform you would want to go to. So let's say, you know, you are looking to really define yourself in the business world. Well, we know, you know, writing on medium, depending on the industry or writing on LinkedIn can be great. It doesn't mean you're going to become an overnight success, but over time, building up an audience and having your theories and ideas really road tested and, and, and really stress tested. People are going to respond to them. People are going to um, give you feedback. And over time you do build that category expertise. Now, some people do that on Instagram. Some people have a flair for Instagram stories and, 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 you know, communicate that way. It really just depends on kind of which is your medium. But I do think it's important to, um, be consistently putting yourself out there if you do um, want to uh, build a presence for yourself. And, and that doesn't just mean taking selfies and posting them to Instagram. I mean this in a way that what are your ideas? What's your intellectual um, offering to the world? And, and be, being prepared to be challenged on that. Before we continue the conversation, I want to ask you for a quick favor. Will you subscribe to the Inspiration Rising podcast on the iTunes podcast app on your phone? Now, it's also available wherever you listen to podcasts. All you have to do is search for Inspiration Rising. Click subscribe. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Why? So you won't miss a single inspiring episode. We search for the most inspiring guests to help you rise up in your life, love, and leadership. And you don't want to miss out. So subscribe and then leave a quick review. Click some stars, preferably five, and leave a sentence telling me what you enjoyed the most. All right, let's jump back in to the conversation. How would you uh, say that the client that just sniffed out the 20-something... <laughs> How, how did they sniff that out? Or maybe you don't yeah. know the conversation, but you know what I mean? How did they, how do you sense that they picked up on that? Yeah. I mean, I think they were, they had posted. So there's a lot of these, um, networking groups now, you know, whether it's, um, the ones that throw their own conferences or just smaller ones that are online only. Um, there's ones that have come out of podcasts, um, you know, like, uh, almost 30 community. If you're familiar with them, I love them, but there's a lot of different forums now where people, especially young women are being encouraged to, you know, build their own, be their own bosses. I mean, we look at girl boss, which is a brand I love the reason you found me, um, there is a side to that, that is skip the becoming a boss, just be your own boss. I don't think that's their intended message, but a lot of times that is what the people coming up here. And so what ends up happening is there's this like generation of people who really just want to be their own bosses. And, and again, I don't actually think that's a, that's, that's by nature a bad thing. I think where it becomes problematic is when the assumption is that that's what's going to happen. I also think there needs to be um, a shift in company culture where companies do acknowledge that they are going to help build the brands of the people that are working for them um, so that ultimately that will help not only 
retain them, but actually grow their careers because that is part of the company's job. So I, when you asked before about, you know, and like, uh, it's your, your first, um, you know, your loyalty should be to the company. Like, yes and no, the company also has loyalty to you or, you know, you're going to jump. So I do think it's, it's a, it's a two way street mm-hmm. and it's, it's on both sides that have to be looking at that. One of the things that I loved how you said in a previous interview, brands need to function like publishers and publishers need to function like brands. Yeah. What is specifically talking about I think we we kind of all get how a publisher needs to function like a brand, but how does a brand need to function like a publisher? What does that look like? What are some examples of that? Yeah. So I come from magazines where the line between the publishing side and the advertising side used to be very much church and state. Really, the two sides did not talk to each other. And now when I think about that, it just seems so like quaint and cute. Right, right. <laughs> um, but believe it or not, I think a lot of people still think that way from old school magazines. It's just not the way it works anymore. Um, there really is... There has, there has been this merging um, between the two sides where, you know, as a consumer, as an audience member... I don't make a ton of distinction between um, how a brand talks to me and how a publisher talks to me. You know, if I am scrolling my Instagram feed, I have the same relationship with Glossier that I do with Refinery29. So one's a brand, one's a publisher. You know, they are both essentially publishers. They both talk to me in the same way with the same, you know, with a visual language that resonates or doesn't resonate, whatever that may be. So when I say that, I mean that brands really need to think of themselves as um, essentially hubs of communication and how they structure their communication and how they talk to their audience is just as important um, as a publisher um, in terms of how they should be prioritizing that. Which platforms? How do they want to you know, uh, communicate their messages? How do they want to think about um, getting to the right audiences? All of those questions that publishers obsess over, brands are now starting to really, really think about seriously. And I've seen some of the best brands do that in a way that's very sophisticated and really resonates. Give, give me an example of one that you really feel like, man, they're knocking it out of the park and doing that. Well, I mean, I, I Glossier, like I mentioned, is the, the classic example. Um, you know, in their case, they launched uh, Into the Gloss, which was a publication, uh, kind of a blog chronicling the top shelf of awesome fashion and beauty um, you know, influencers and they had that first. So they learned about their audience that way. And then they launched the product line. That's kind of a classic example in the world of social. Um, I would say, you know, I, I often talk about Bumble because I love them. I love their brand. They were a client. And I think, uh, overall they've done such a phenomenal job of distilling, uh, their, incredibly clear brand identity into a content strategy that resonates. So when you go onto their various feeds, you feel like you're talking to a friend. Um, You feel connected and close in a way that... I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't feel that way with other dating apps generally. But I do feel like I have a um, a relationship with that brand. Sarah, so, yeah. I'm 46. I've been, married, <laughs> I've been married 25 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have not used a dating app. We like back in 25 yeah. years, I was 20 when I met yeah. my wife. Yeah. It was old school. I was in college. I mean, I love that though. That's like so <laughs> retro. Just <kidding. laughs> so retro. Yeah. So I don't, I don't really hang out a lot of dating apps, you know? Yeah, but, but it's, it's funny because it doesn't even matter. I mean, if you are consuming content online, the fact is like 
there's going, yeah. And I mean, and, and to be clear, Bumble has many other parts of its business beyond dating. It's, uh, it's got a whole networking component. Exactly. It's all, it's, it's much more expansive uh, than just dating. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, let's just say someone who's listening is going, okay, I'm, I'm wanting to start my own business or a side hustle while I do my own, uh, you know, while I, I'm mm-hmm. still working for a company or a corporation and they want to use social media, obviously, mm-hmm. where would they start? I mean, it's so overwhelming. Like, okay, I've got my own Instagram account. I've got my own Facebook account. Mm-hmm. I'm starting this side hustle or I'm fully starting this business. Yeah. What should they focus on? Yeah. It's such a good question. It's one that I get from clients all the time. So first of all, they're not alone. Um, I think the biggest question is ask where your audience is first and then design the content around that. So if you're, let's say you're a product that's designed for, you know, millennial moms, I just picked that out of the air. Okay, great. Well, where are millennial moms spending their time? Like actually spending their time. Don't even just think of social. I would do a whole mapping where you're thinking, okay, they're on these apps. It could be things like care.com, you know, looking for babysitters. It could be things like Amazon and Target um, shopping. I, I always do sort of a total time spent chart and really look at it. And then I go, okay, um, you know, they're texting with their friends because that's how they're getting advice. It's small group chats typically for uh, parents. Um, okay, well, that's, I'm not going to be able to get in on that from a social point of view, but maybe I could from a Facebook group point of view, you know, maybe there's something there because that that's going to be a small forum. So it's really thinking about, um, you know, who your audience is, really drilling down and you'd be surprised how many brands do not do that. Um, and even get so far as the brand identity, the launch phase, and still haven't figured out who their audience is. And that is a massive, um, you know, blind spot for a lot of brands. So if you're just starting out, knowing who your audience is, is like the key. And then you can design everything from there. You can find out, you know, who are your communities who are going to be interested in you? Who are your, who are going to be your super fans, um, and design for that, um, and pick the platforms for that. Um, and I would say, don't try to do everything all at once. If you're small, especially you want to start with one, maybe two, um, and really just invest in those, define your voice, who you are, um, and then go from there. But resource, resource constraint is a real thing and don't try to do everything. Mm-hmm. So one of the amazing opportunities that you've had is uh, really running the lifestyle partnerships at Facebook and Instagram for almost five years. And most of the people listening here are not in a position to have any kind of conversation with Facebook other than why did you shut down my account because I was right. messaging people too many times or something. Uh, that's the only reason I didn't contact <laughs> Facebook. So take us behind the scenes a little bit, like take us behind the veil, the blue veil, <laughs> the, the, the blue book veil. And what did, what did that look like? D- did people come to you who were yeah. looking to develop um, some sort of relationships? What was the benefits that Facebook garnered from them or, you know, yeah. how did Facebook help them? Help us understand that a little bit more. Totally. Yes. The blue veil. I love it. Um, so my job, I'll just talk a little bit about what my job was. Cause I think the word strategic, the term strategic partnerships can be a little bit fuzzy. Um, so what, 
the team that I was on did was really serve as a point of contact within Facebook and Instagram, actually. So both platforms um, for public figures. So we call them public figures, influencers, and brands. Uh, excuse me, public figures and publishers, not brands. That was that was not something we covered. Um, and and those two groups. And the reason why Facebook developed this is because you know until the team started, there was no point of contact for a publisher, even a big one, or an influencer who was coming up on the platform, even a big movie star. Like Brad Pitt had no one to call unless he somehow got a direct line to Sheryl Sandberg. So there's, you know, there's actually a real benefit to Facebook to having people who can actually handle these relationships and help these people, you know, in ways that range from teaching them about the platform so they can use it better to simply getting them verified so that the fans can find them to eliminating the fakes um, so that they, you know, go on live TV and don't say bad things about <laughs> Facebook or Instagram. You know, it's very, it ranges, but the ultimate goal on Facebook's end is to, you know, encourage a, a plethora of great content from public figures on the platform and from publishers to then drive more people, uh, ultimately, and, and more time spent on the platform. That really is the, the calculus that Facebook is making. And, you know, every social platform, to some extent, has a team like this. I think you saw Snapchat um, did not make enough investment in this area. And when they rolled out uh, their update, uh, I guess about a year and a half ago, maybe more now, it really was not well-received. And I believe right. that's in many ways because they did not have um, really boots on the ground um, in this area to really develop those relationships and understand what those people wanted. And so it's very important to, you know, to the communities that Facebook serves to have this kind of um, resource in house. So that's kind of the focus and that's why Facebook did this. Now, you know, the jobs on those teams ranged wildly, you know, often we would get a ton of inbound, um, about everything from, you know, the craziest stuff. I mean, I've been hacked. I'm, you know, I'm a Saudi prince and I need your help. I mean, it was navigating every type of public figure and publisher in the world. And you can wow. imagine, yeah, it was pretty nuts. Um, but ultimately it was kind of up to Facebook and up to us to figure out how to prioritize which products we wanted to um, really match to the right people. Um, you know, sometimes it was around a certain launch, for example, Facebook watch when watch launched did a ton of work around, you know, figuring out which, um, which folks we should go after to feature in watch shows. And obviously that has evolved quite a bit. So the, the priorities were constantly shifting and changing depending on which products um, were coming down the pipe. And by products, I mean tech products. So right. it could be, you know, new, new features, new um, uh, plat platforms like watch within the broader Facebook or Instagram ecosystem, um, or even big moments like the Oscars, um, what was going to be, let's say Instagram's integration into that. Mm hmm. Okay. So, uh, would some, some of it's inbound, which is like verification, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. helping take away fake people, hacks, yes. all those sorts of things. Yes. I'm also hearing outbound where you're wanting to take certain yes. products out to individuals. Uh, would Facebook and Instagram ask for feedback prior to launching different products? Definitely. Yes. So they would often bring, um, people in and, um, especially, you know, influencers and ask them to test different features just to make sure, look, are we getting this right? How, how does this feel? But then, you know, a lot of stuff was launched and just sent out into the, into the ecosystem 
ecosystem and, and iterated on from there. So it happened both ways. I would say my job, um, was very much, uh, it, it was mostly proactive. I would say some, you know, 30%, um, reactive and the rest was proactive. And so I'll, I'll give you an example at the, at the beginning of my time at Facebook, I focused almost exclusively on fashion. So I saw this really big opportunity, um, in the fashion world, uh, around Instagram. We saw a ton of like organic activity happening with, you know, whether it was people at the Met Ball or Fashion Week posting, just because that platform really lent itself um, very, very well to visuals and Instagram such a visual platform. Um, and so as part of my work there, I sort of made it a, a big goal to, you know, help shape Instagram into the top platform for fashion. And that is very much a like strategy for how to get there. Okay, how are we going to do this? And it involves developing relationships with the top fashion magazines, going and you know having meetings at Vogue and being like, hey, we're Instagram. Believe it or not, that did not; those relationships did not exist. Ultimately, it culminated in something um, involving an actual award that the CFDA, the the Council of Fashion Designers of America. Um, gave out for Instagram fashion Instagrammer of the year. That was an idea that I came up with and pitched to them Mm. and that they ultimately did. So when we talk about reactive versus proactive, there's no way that they would have ever come to me with that idea. But ultimately I went to them, worked with the team to execute, um, you know, had amazing internal support from Instagram and Facebook to do it. And it, it resulted in a boatload of organic press because it was just a, a completely novel concept. So, you know, strategic partnerships is really about having a big goal in mind and maybe it's an audacious goal, like making X the number one platform for sports or whatever it might be. And that's, you know, figuring out how to measure that, figuring out how to put metrics against it and then going out and creating a strategy to get there. So that's ideally how a job like that is done. Um, but then of course you have a lot of, you know, stuff that comes to you in the meantime that you have to field. Sure. Sure. The benefit to these organizations. So like, let's say you're going to the top fashion magazines and this goes back to the connections, right? You're, you're, you're reaching out to them. Obviously you're coming with the cachet of the the name Instagram, even if it's newer, you know, the relationship is not there. What do they, you've always got to be going into that going, what do they benefit from? How are they going to benefit? How how are you thinking about that when you're going into that conversation with them? Totally. Well, you always have to be going into anything. And even, you know, now it's, it's, it's always a two-way street. Like, what are we, how are we going to help each other? And I always think about that even when, um, I'm reaching out to somebody for some help. It's always about, Hey, um, I'd love this, but like, how can I help you? And I definitely think that that goes for partnerships like times a million because both parties have to feel they're really getting something out of the deal. So in the case of, um, Yeah, exactly. It honestly is very much had that, that concept has very much informed uh, how I do business and how I, I kind of do life. It was always about thinking, okay, well, what can Instagram or Facebook bring to the table? We can bring, you know, things like, um, uh, press, we can pitch this out to press. We can, uh, display it on our channels. We can maybe do some editorial, um, on the Instagram, uh, at Instagram account. You know, there are various different, we call levers, um, which we could pull to help them 
overall though, it really was the power of just a great idea, um, that they had to really be sold on and the power of a platform, you know, like it wasn't once that flywheel got rolling, it wasn't like super hard to quote unquote sell Instagram to the fashion world. Like it was, they were already primed for it. My job was really just to bring them super creative ideas that they got excited about and help them execute. But ultimately they were the people at the forefront. I was really just sort of doing behind the scenes puppetry, I call it. (laughs) So now you have your own consulting company, SW Projects. And I, gosh, call me dense, but I've been researching you for the last two weeks. Wow. And it wasn't (laughs) until like two days ago that I put together, I kept going, what does SW stand for? I never really like asked that, but I'm like, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm going SW projects. Okay. So that's so funny. <laughs> I am so sorry. I finally no, it's fine. <laughs> Sarah Wilson. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, um, tell me about what you're doing and if there are people that are listening that are possibly connected with brands or publishers mm-hmm. that could benefit from what you're bringing to the table. Absolutely. Yeah. So the the way I think about what I do is I work with kind of two groups. Remember I mentioned when I was at Facebook, um, I worked with influencers and, and publishers. Right. So one big, big like group that I never really got to work with when I was there was brands and brands would constantly be coming to me because they knew I had expertise on the platform. Um, whether it was, you know, lifestyle brands or, or beyond that really were just like, look, we need help. And the reality is unless you're spending a ton of money on Facebook, Instagram and advertising dollars, you're just not going to have a resource internally to help you kind of have to figure it out yourself. And so what I realized was they need help that goes way beyond just placing ads. They need help around how to represent their brand on these platforms and beyond. So whatever platforms are they're focused on. And, you know, my experience in journalism and then in, you know, really storytelling at scale um, at HuffPost, which taught me the value of designing for kind of audience first, community first, and then working backwards. Um, I realized that that could be a real benefit and an asset. And so when I It was really with the intention of building something that would help brands, but then also speak to, um, you know, my DNA, which is publishing. You know, I come from publishing. My, My mom is a journalist. I have publishing in my bones. And, you know, I've been fascinated by the way digital publishing has evolved. So I do think that brands and publishers actually play off of each other. And there's this really cool like symbiosis. And so the way that I, I talk about what I do is I help brands think like publishers and I help publishers think like brands. Hmm. And I kind of explained already how I, um, approach, you know, why, why I think it is that brands should be thinking like publishers if they're not already. But in terms of publishers thinking like brands, I mean, what that means is essentially helping them think of their audiences as ultimate consumers. So how do you use um, content to kind of drive them down that path of conversion, you know, buying something, subscribing ultimately, you know, without doing that in a scary way. I think that can be scary for a lot of publishers. And so those are kind of the two groups that I work with. And, um, you know, the clients that I've had in those two categories vary, but they tend to be, you know, in the, on the publishing side, I've worked with a ton of legacy publishers. So National Geographic is one. The New York Times, I helped them launch um, their at NYT gender um, Instagram, which is a dedicated account for um, that initiative at New York Times. Um, I'm actually working with Playboy 
Envoy now, who's doing a really, really interesting kind of brand reorientation, call it. Um, how do they think of themselves as a lifestyle brand uh, with sort of pleasure as a guiding principle? It's super interesting and it's primarily female-led, which is which is so fascinating. Um, and so I would say those are some of the legacy brands, although I have worked with the brands that are, you know, newer, like Bustle, which is a giant uh, women-centric publisher um, that's done really, really well. And um, so that's kind of the publishing side. And then on the on the brand side, it's really varied. I would say I don't tend to work with a ton of startups, but I, I would say I don't tend to work with a ton of large conglomerates either. It's kind of in the middle. So I mentioned Bumble was the client. Um, I've worked with WeWork, who um, are so interesting. I mean, they're essentially redefining what work means for this generation. And, and the content possibilities of that are just endless, right? Like, I mean, I, I'm sure you saw they just recently opened uh, WeGrow, which is essentially a, a preschool. And, um, you know, talk about just just thinking big. And, and, and that, is, that is a company that I've just, you know, really enjoyed working with. And then, you know, there's been a variety of others in the beauty, fashion, lifestyle space, but um, it's always about figuring out who your consumer is first. Um, and, you know, working with a company called Goldie Blocks right now, which do you know them? They're super, super interesting. It's amazing. Yeah. They're, they're really incredible. Cool. It's, yeah. A, it's a girl's toy for your listeners who don't know. It's a, it's a STEM focused um, girl's toy. And um, they are all about disrupting the pink aisle. Um, as the founder dubbed it. And um, to me, that's the direction that I want to be going in terms of my client mix. It's mission-driven, fabulous founders um, who are, you know, ready to embrace change and see the kind of future in a way that's just super compelling and are excited to embrace the changes that are happening now. Um, Those types of clients are truly dream clients. Well, uh, yeah, and if you have not heard of Goldie Blocks, definitely go and check it out. It's Goldie B L O X. It's a really amazing brand, and they're it's beautiful marketing and branding, and and a compelling message. So um, that's pretty amazing. Um, I I have enjoyed each one of your um, <laughs> newsletters that have. Oh come my out. gosh! Thank yeah. you. Thank um, you so much. I wasn't a subscriber beforehand, but I went back and you know I read them Amazing. all. Oh, you are such very... a good researcher. I feel like this is like you're you're fabulous on research. My oh, God, super smart, super <laughs> smart. And uh, what's the name of it? By the way, remind me called the short of it. Um, so the reason that I call it that is because we're just so overwhelmed with newsletters now. I feel like everyone's got a newsletter. I really just wanted to pick some aspect of the digital ecosystem, something that's happening right now, whether it's a trend, a moment, a campaign, break it down, analyze it, tell you why you should care. Um, and kind of a few takeaways to grow your own business. That's essentially what I do. Um, every other week. Yeah, I would say, if you have your own business or side hustle, or you're interested in brands, if you're interested in marketing, social media, if you're interested in even technology, um, I love you did one on the power of the the drop, I think is yes, uh, really, yes. you did one on um, influencers and the role of influencers. Um, anyway, it comes out every two weeks, I think. Is that right? 
about that. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. you know, it's, it's just me. So I, I do my very best, but yes, about every two weeks. Yeah. And I love the illustrations that you have. Oh, uh, thank you. Yes. Who... That's by an illustrator in Portland, um, who I found and her name is Kate Bingham and Bert and she's fabulous. And of course I found her on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so people can go to swprojects.co, mm-hmm. SW, SW, by the way, if you haven't figured it out, it stands for Sarah Wilson, <laughs> swprojects.co. We'll obviously we'll listen, list that in our show notes and everything else, but yeah, I love what you're doing. And, um, you're, gosh, you're just so smart and so articulate and helping Thank people through these issues. And I really would encourage people to, to check out, your uh, newsletter because yes. it's, um, yeah, it's very smart and they can sign up for that at your website. Yes. Um, so Sarah, thank you so much for sharing thank your expertise you, and your experiences. It's uh, really just a, a brain full. <laughs> My brain is now full. Uh-huh. I, I just walk away though. And I would encourage our listeners to walk away and see how these two statements would somehow inform whatever you're doing in life. I think these two statements really would inform you. Brands need to function like publishers and publishers need to function like brands. And I think that even, even a mom who's uh, working with the PTA, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The local school, that's a brand. Yeah. Oh right? my gosh. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And how, yeah. how is that PTA functioning like a need to function like a publisher yeah. to get the yeah. word out. Um, if you're a teacher, my wife's a teacher, she's a kindergarten teacher. She uses an app that, you know, she publishes things daily to her families. This is so interesting. My wife has a brand and she's not even trying to, she's highly regarded in her school district. And one of the reasons why is she takes pictures of her students even throughout the day and sends them out on the app to the parents. Nobody can see it other than wow. the parents. Yeah. My wife is a publisher as right, a kindergarten right, teacher. Right, I mean, she right. doesn't have an Instagram following. You know, her following is the parents of 24 kids. Right. Um, she's very, she talk about a micro influencer. She's a oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. But she's anyway. She's really leveraging the platforms that she has to really make an impact. I love it. <laughs> right, right. And her story is these kids are learning to read, right? Yeah. Do math, not kill each other, you know, all these things. So um, no matter where, you're at as a listener, you know, thinking about that, I love, it's causing me to think about brands need to function as publishers, publishers need to function as brands. So anyway, Mm -hmm. thanks for Mm -hmm. bringing that to us, Sarah. Of course. Well, thank you so much for having me, David. I really appreciate it. If you've been inspired or learned something from this episode, do yourself a favor and tell a friend by sharing a learning with someone else. You'll actually be solidifying it in your own mind and heart and more likely to implement it in your own life. Tell them about our conversation and let them know that they can listen to the Inspiration Rising podcast on the iTunes podcast app on their phone. Check out our website at www.insporising.com. That's I-N-S-P-O rising.com and on all social media platforms as Inspo Rising. Now, as you go out about your day, may you be inspired to rise up in your life, love, and leadership. I'll talk to you next time.